about to start the, um, the next panel discussion, it will be uh, I'm trying to answer this big, complicated question that I just used at the opening of today, which is how can we design AI that extends human capabilities and uh, empowers people rather than controls them? And we've got a fantastic panel and a fantastic chair lined up for it. Um, the way we thought we run this session is that we're going to ask Alex to give us a quick whistle-stop tour through kind of the opportunity and the challenges in this area and what we learned from some of the early research at Nesta. And then we're going to hand over to Carly Kind from Ed Lovelace Institute to take us through a really exciting panel discussion. But on that note, I'm going to hand over to Alex. So there's something comforting already about everyone being on stage rather than just you all looking at me. But um, I'm the senior researcher here at the Center for Collective Intelligence Design. And as Peter mentioned, the relationship between AI and human capabilities is something that we're really interested in exploring and particularly pushing past some of the hype that I'm sure you're as tired of as we are to think about what are the real opportunities when we start to think of AI as a tool that is just one of the resources of intelligence that might help us to achieve better impact in terms of collective intelligence projects. So over the last three to four months, we've been looking at that through the lens of existing collective intelligence initiatives and seeing what opportunities they are able to realize by developing new algorithmic tools. And using some of the framing that was presented earlier, uh, the four purposes which you might uh, choose to mobilize collective intelligence for, I just wanted to run through them quickly and highlight what we think some of the key opportunities are for each of those four purposes that artificial intelligence can help to address. So when it comes to understanding problems, a lot of the time uh, it's in collective intelligence you're dealing with bringing together big data and big data from novel data sources, some of it structured, some of it unstructured, and trying to make sense of all of that to generate some kind of valuable insight to help you uh, decide or act. And so when we look at supervised and unsupervised machine learning methods, we see the real opportunity for helping to bring some kind of order and structure to that massive amount of data. And also to start not only contextualizing it in real time, but starting to make predictions and plan for the future through predictive algorithms. When it comes to seeking solutions, some of the common challenges that we see in collective intelligence projects are how you might start to identify the signal from the noise. So if you're a problem holder and you're uh, mobilizing uh, a lot of new solutions to a problem, how can you best find the one that is the perfect match for your problem? And here we see an opportunity really for recommendation systems or improved search mechanisms to help provide that match between a problem holder and a solution. There's also an opportunity for being a little bit more creative with the way that we interact with machines. So working on a task together to generate new types of designs that maybe we haven't thought of previously. I think that's a little bit of a nascent kind of opportunity. It's often seen in design on the one-on-one -on -one level where uh, designers are using artificial intelligence to help explore new solutions. But we see the opportunity there bringing it into a team environment and how we can better generate new ideas in combination with artificial intelligence. 
When it comes to deciding and acting, uh, a lot of the kind of challenges we see in designing collective intelligence are about how to coordinate between many different inputs and how to synthesize the kind of uh, contributions that you're getting from large-scale deliberative exercises, for example. And so there's some really amazing AI tools being developed that can help to uh, simplify or help to extract some of the insights coming from uh, crowd discussions online, and also not only provide the kind of readout of the main, uh, the main areas of consensus and disagreement, but to visualize that in a way which is reflected back to participants so they can start to locate where their contribution is in relation to a dynamic system. When it comes to learning and adapting, I think on an individual level even all of us struggle to understand how is it that when we apply a certain approach, whether it's worked or not, and really measuring that to keep improving. And when it comes to generating or understanding those kind of patterns synthesized from the contributions of many, it's even harder. And that's where we can have machine learning algor algorithms help us to identify some of the patterns so that we can keep improving and learning both on an individual level, but also maybe at a project level. So those are some of the key opportunities that we see. And over the last three to four months, we've been looking at projects where those examples are actually already in use. And unfortunately, I don't have time to go into them. And also, I want to hear what the other panelists have to say. But we are, we've published a blog today which lays out some of our early thoughts um, that uh, bring together the findings from that research. Uh, and I guess one of the main takeaways for us is the kind of design tensions that emerge when you're trying to combine artificial and human intelligence in collective intelligence projects. So sometimes it seems like there is a toss-up between optimizing for efficiency versus the kind of experience or motivating factors that might mobilize mass participation of many individuals. There's also sometimes a kind of decision point of whether you're optimizing for speed versus truly deliberative and um, rich uh, discussions. There's many other design choices that we think are going to be the key, um, the key points that need to be considered when you're leveraging these different resources of intelligence together. Um, our next step is really to uh, publish some of the early findings in the next couple of months, but also start thinking what's, what's going to be happening in the next five to ten years and exploring some of the more um, nascent opportunities that maybe we don't see in practice yet, but we are starting to see in lab experiments. Uh, you've heard about some of them from our collective intelligence grantees this morning, and you can hear more about them in the posters. But hopefully this panel will also set up some of that future thinking of what the opportunities are for humans and machines to work together at scale for greater impact. Thank you, Alex. And thank you all for joining us. My name is Carly Kind, and I'm the director of the Ada Lovelace Institute. Uh, we're a, uh, for those of you who haven't heard of us before, uh, I forgive you, we're a relatively recent, um, recently established research institute and think tank that's looking at the social and ethical impact of data and AI. Um, and I'm very, very pleased and honoured to be here with a, um, an eminent panel today. Uh, we have Julian Cornabies from uh, UCL, who's an AI researcher and uh, professor there. Um, Marco Marchesi, from, who's the CTO of Happy Finish. And Karina Vold, who's a philosopher from, uh, from the Leverhulme Centre at, at Cambridge. Um, 
We're going to uh, look at the question of how we should design AI that extends human capabilities. And um, in my mind, there's kind of three facets to this conversation. There's, the first is, how, what does AI that extends human capabilities look like, and what are some examples that we're seeing in, in application today? The second facet is, what does AI that extends human capabilities in the context of cap collective intelligence look like? And I think that that's a related but separate discussion that we will also come on to. And then finally, what are the, um, what are the kind of um, implications on human capabilities of AI? And I think that's where we bring in some of the social and ethical considerations. How might AI be transforming human capabilities to begin with, either individually or in the context of collective intelligence? Um, there's a, a recent book out called Reengineering uh, Humanity, which talks about how um, it's not only us who are engineering technology, but technology that is engineering us. And I think all of us have some anecdotal experiences of that, um, you know, the, the concept that it's harder to pay attention now, for example, or perhaps we're not as good at um, navigating maps as we once were because of our reliance on uh, Google Maps. Um, and uh, in the context of collective intelligence um, efforts, what does it mean to be working with AI and how might that either enhance or potentially diminish our collective intelligence and human capabilities? So we're going to try and grapple with some of those interesting issues today. Um, and um, I'm, I'm hoping that the panellists are going to ground their comments as much as possible in real-life examples of different systems or projects or um, applications that they're working on. And to that end, I'm going to ask Marco to kick off um, because he's been working in the use of AI in the context of human creativity and in the creative industries. And I think there's some really tangible lessons to be drawn from that. So um, perhaps we can hear a little bit about your work yeah. and how AI is extending hu human creative capabilities. Yeah, thanks, Carly. So, yeah, I'm working in a creative tech company Collective Finish. And we are basically, we need to merge creativity and tech every day. Of course, uh, Still, creativity is the key, is the central part of our what we do. And at the same time, we need the tech to empower and making more and like, uh, and pushing forward about creativity. And in the last two years, I joined the, the team uh, three years ago. And in the last two years, we saw an incremental interest in, uh, in AI, and specifically, let's say, deep learning, so not all the uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, field, but just specifically generative model and everything that is related to images, for example. And in that case, we, we see how basically it's really interesting to see how artists, they, they grew, grew up with Photoshop, something really digital. They're really keen to protect their tradition of Photoshop, and they want to try to avoid to have uh, this AI they kind of replace them, themselves. So one question that, that everyone asks me all the time is about we're going to be replaced by an AI. Of course, it's, a, it's something that you hear every day in every single industry, but it happens also for creativity. So creative, creative artists, they feel like, uh, okay, but what if... Uh, can, can be AI can be creative? There is the, another main question that we need to, to answer. Actually, it's still a, it's a big open question that uh, actually is good to, to hear about from you. And, uh, and we, uh, we found that we met many different examples. Actually, I think I have some slides to, this should be, I don't know if it were part of the, 
can I use this one? Yeah, 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 I can. So, for example, one is, uh, is this one. It was uh, is a project that we made uh, uh, with Royal Academy, uh, Yinka Shonibare. Yinka Shonibare is uh, one of the artists residents of Royal Academy. In that case, they want to, the artists want to uh, place his uh, sculpture, this one that you see, inside a painting of a neoclassist painting. Of course, the first problem was, is a painting, so it's not a 3D environment. So we need to recreate and guess how the environment should look like uh, in a 3D. So, and to do that, basically, we train a system to uh, create a new neoclassical uh, uh, art based on the neoclassical, uh, let's say, knowledge that we get. So we collect a lot of uh, neoclassical painting data and we recreate the texture that you see in the garden mainly to uh, basically fill the gaps between the painting that you see on the left and uh, what you see in the 3D environment. Uh, there was some side effect like the painting that you see on the right. It was kind of uh, playing about what we can generate. We generate, I think, kind of, uh, there is one that is kind of a flash <laughs> generator the bottom right, and there is kind of, I don't know, Dante's, uh, Dante's representation of something. So AI, we, we show beautiful pictures, but at the same time, uh, we, we can know who is the author of this, of course. It's because it's part of a collective, uh, let's say, heart, all the heritage from neoclassicism, plus all the uh, human intervention because we need to decide which data, how to drive this data, and also a lot of uh, the authors of the artist himself. Another example is this one. We made basically, we, we are interested in how we, because of half of what we do is uh, image retouching. So all the big billboards that you see on the streets, a lot of them are made by, by, by us. So, and now one big thing is that a lot of the tasks that you do on Photoshop every day are really boring. Actually, it's really, and people that they want to, they're really big artists in our, in our house we have. And they don't want to do any more really simple, trivial tasks. So we are training system to replace that part in a way that the artists now, they should just focus on the creative part, not anymore on tasks that really everyone can do. And this is part of, the, of this one. In this case, you see it's, a puzzle, it's a basically a question they ask every time. That the image on the left is the original one. And the, two, the other two ones, one it was retouched by a human person, the other one by a uh, machine learning system. Uh, raise your hand if you think uh, that one on the middle is made by AI. So I guess you, you exclude that the other one is. Uh, okay, so yeah, that one in the middle is made by AI. So by you, of course, uh, you see it's kind of imitating the approach. The other example is this one that was last week. So we ask an artist to, to match his art that you see on the left. It's called Yinka Ilori. All, all artists that we work with, they are called Yinka for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. 
And, uh, we, and basically, it was a kind of uh, interesting situation because we need to match Inca uh, art plus the brand they were working on together. And uh, we realized that the training the system, as you can see the process in the middle, and the final result on the right, uh, the artist identified himself uh, with the process that, was used, that we were using with the deep learning system. We were using generative adversarial network. I don't know how much you know about that. But it's, it's shortly, is that there are two neural networks that they are compete to each other in a kind of adversarial mechanism to generate new samples. And then new samples, and this process of memorizing data is really similar to the process that the artists use every day for creating art, because his art is based on his Nigerian tradition. He's from Nigeria originally. He identified really himself on that. So these three examples, they are really different, but they show like how every day we need to talk with and try to match with uh, what artists needs a really open conversation about that who is the owner mm. of that yeah i think there's some really interesting um questions coming out of that as well that i want to come back to but before i do let's take a kind of um, another snapshot of a different way of looking at how ai can extend human capability so we've heard about it in the context of creative creativity julian your work has um been across a number of uh, ai development across a number of different domains but including in the health domain and including in the context of, of development. Can you talk to us a little bit about projects that you've worked on where uh, AI is being used to extend human capabilities, perhaps in the context of synthesis or analysis or, or other areas that you see it being useful? You mentioned uh, healthcare as uh, one application, and indeed uh, there is more and more users of, of AI or attempt at using AI in healthcare. With the obvious question being, uh, as I explained, oh, are we replacing doctors? Uh, if it's done right, no, we're not. Um, one typical application where there is the human in the loop, and I'll come back to that notion in a minute, that, that really keep things grounded is actually how do we speed up the work of a radiologist uh, or of a, of a doctor in an eye clinic? So one of the projects I was involved with was with Moorfields Eye Hospital. Uh, when I was uh, leading the DeepMind Health Research team. And there they have the problem that there's this new fantastic scanning method called uh, an OCT, which does a 3D scan of your eye up to four millimeter depth. And it takes about 30 seconds. You go, you walk into the A&E, your eye is scanned, and then you wait. And a couple hours later, a doctor is finally available to have a look at it, interpret it, looking through the different layers of your, of your cornea, and then say, well, okay, you know, you, it's just a minor scratch, uh, you can go home, or, well, okay, no, here you're having uh, a, a real severe problems, you, you need to stay in. Um, and, and this is the same need both for walking A&E or for uh, regular checkups on uh, advanced macular degeneracy. There, what you can do is not automatically decide which patient gets uh, uh, needs to stay or, 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 or to go, but you can already triage. That is, get all the pile of files that are in waiting and flags, those that seem really important. Um, and there, you're just making it easier for the clinician to do directly his job. You have similar needs, uh, again, in radiography, when you get um, um, feeding tube, nasal feeding tube, uh, whereby for some patients who can't feed themselves, you put a tube through the nose and down to the stomach, uh, and you feed them. Now, the way that works is a nurse puts the tube, uh, then 
you've got an X-ray of that to see whether the tube is in the right place, and this gets sent to a radiologist to examine. The, the radiologist can see it many hours later, and by that time, the patient might have been fed. Well, what if the tube is actually in the lungs? And sadly, if it's 24 hours later and the patient has food in his lungs, it's not going to help much. So again, they're a triaging system, an early alerting system. Um, you might have heard of some of the, the applications in health of, uh, of streams uh, at DeepMind, which has no AI in it, by the way. And that's where it's, it's really important, actually, to, to just identify the right depths of tech and not use AI just for the sake of AI, um, which is there is a simple decision tree developed by biochemists, by the collective intelligence of a group of biochemists who work for the NHS. And just putting that with the right level of tech, which was a good app and a good communication of transfer over network of the results between a lab to uh, an app, you got early detection of uh, acute kidney injury with a nephrologist showing up at the bedside of a patient in the ortho ward of the hospital um, before that patient was actually to be put for a contrast scan. Contrast that you inject a product, a radioactive product, in order to, better, to do better imaging. Well, the problem if your kidneys are not working, the radioactive product is not going to be eliminated right. So here there's a clear advance in a, by detecting things early on. So that's all about extending the, the human intelligence. We've been working with uh, Shakodun, uh, a Somali nonprofit. They do something apparently completely different, but again, we come back to the notion of triage. What they do, they help provide big organizations uh, like the Danish Refugee Council like, who operate in Somalia, and they provide them with, well, citizen feedback, precisely the, the, the collective in, uh, part of the collective intelligence, which is how do the people who are on the ground and are oftentimes, and I realize the term is, is uh, quite ambiguous and on purpose, on the receiving end of some of the international aid initiatives, what do they have to say about them? Can they say, well, here we're having a drought, and you're actually acting very far from us, but here the drought is here. Or on the contrary, well, you know the thing you were, that, that was supposed to arrive, it didn't arrive. Or instead, hey, here, rather than developing this, we need a well here. Um, so Shakodun has worked over the low internet penetration rate and the illiteracy problem in parts of Somalia uh, by just making phone numbers available and having a real good delivery mechanism so people can be aware of these phone numbers and calls in and leaves voicemails or speaks to a human. The problem is they are too successful. Uh, they get uh, between 1,000 and 2,000 calls every single day. Uh, and if you were to listen to all the voicemails and just categorize it, that takes about 15 hours uh, for, for their employees, which is manageable and prevents them from scanning and doing more of it. Uh, so here, can we have a triaging system, the same way that we do for the clinicians, where we tag the um, voicemails by keywords and identify those that are really critical versus those who are a very kind thank you note. Uh, and hence, close the feedback, we're going to now have something really, really collective at, at scale. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of such users, and, and I, I really strongly believe that AI is not a solution. I mean, I realize that's ironic because I'm, I'm, you know, machine learning researcher, uh, so I'm, I'm scoring an on goal there. But really, we have 30 years of tech for development to learn from. You know, ICT40, so one laptop per child initiatives, tons of fantastically well-meaning projects that did not quite land where they where they where they should have been. I'm a scientist. I'm a techie. I might have opinions of how the world works, but so does everyone at the pub. Uh, luckily, we have persons who are as skilled in the domains and the problems as I am in math. 
uh, how do I put, and that's really what I'm putting my carrier towards, is how do I serve a, a transmission belt system where I take what the latest research that comes up, the cool methodology, uh, and brings it into the hands of those who actually know what they're talking about, who actually know that, oh yeah, if you try to use that this way, we tried something similar years ago and it doesn't work. But however, if you use it to reach out to this person, now you actually get traction. Uh, and, and, and for that, you really need to pair very closely, the same way we paired with clinicians, and to pair closely a tech team and domain experts. And it takes a while and it takes hard work uh, because now it's collective intelligence, not just within one culture, but within two different cultures, to identify together where the tech can have impact. Um, gonna take a few fingers. The first few problems will be very low-hanging fruits, but as you do them, you realize, oh, okay, now I understand what you're doing. You understand what I'm doing. And maybe the next time the, the domain experts, human rights researchers walks into your office and sees you playing with a funny algorithm, it's like, hold on, you have an algorithm that does this. I have a problem that's somewhat similar. Could we do something there? And what I really care about is taking that from the nice proof of concept, which there are tons of now, which is fantastic. A few years ago, you wouldn't have that in, in uh, AI for good. Um, but now taking that to actual products that are usable. Um, sadly, a lot of great things are done in hackathons precisely with the aim to, to augment human intelligence and are done on a voluntary basis. And then they are put on GitHub, open sourced, for gifted to the community. And sadly, GitHub sometimes ends up being the biggest cemetery of great ideas. Uh, how do we get that to the next stage? How do we build organization that can help take these really fantastic ideas but scale them to a product that helps multiple people, not just one clinician in a hospital, but actually turns into a product that's used for several hospitals. Uh, and here, this goes beyond AI, this goes more into the you know, business plan and executives. I mean, that's, I guess that's why I'm not wearing just a t-shirt now, but a shirt, uh, to go to, to venture and try to do that. But the interest of organizations like Nesta and of groupings like this is precisely to take, you know, remove the AI fancy and the, and, and the hype and just focus, okay, that's a tech, like, or like any tool, how do we put it to, to use at proper scaling into the right hands? I think that's really important. I think the moving the discourse away from, uh, I've heard someone say recently, there's nothing artificial about AI. The fact that you have to kind of embed it in the communities which are going to use it and think really hard about how, I, I think both you and Marco talked really about how to use AI to kind of top up human capabilities rather than think that it can supplant them in, in any way. Karina, maybe you could move to talk about some of your research in terms of how AI can extend human interaction and, and perhaps also some of the unintended consequences of that and perhaps we might start to move into thinking about uh, ethical and social imp impacts as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm the token philosopher up here, so <laughs> I'm going to ask you guys to indulge a little philosophy. Um, so at the same time, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but also you're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's no better place to start than with Socrates. So one of the guiding questions in my research is what effect is technology having on human cognitive capacities and how do we make sure those are good effects rather than bad effects? Um, and this is a question that has a long history in philosophy going back to at least Socrates. Um, so if you've read the Phaedrus, um, Plato, uh, describes his character Socrates as resisting what was the current technology at the time, which was um, basically a shift from oracy to literacy. Um, so Socrates defended the tradition of, of speaking and orating, and he resisted writing any words down. And he did that because he, so he argues in the, in the dialogue at least, um, because he worries that it's gonna dumb people down, so they're gonna become forgetful. 
Um, and he also worries that it's going to make us less social. Um, so he thinks that we'll have nothing to say to each other, essentially, and we'll just go right to the text, and we'll just bypass the human. Uh, and that's interesting for a couple reasons, I think. Um, on the one hand, it's exactly the kind of arguments you hear today against technology, right? So this is exactly what you hear about Google and exactly what you hear about Facebook, is that it's making us less social and that we have no memory. <laughs> so that argument has been around for a long time, and that's not to say that there's nothing to it. Um, but I do think most of us think literacy was a good thing. Um, so we t kind of <laughs> tend to be on the other side, um, sort of against Socrates. Um, the other thing I like to point out with this example is that it's somewhat ironic, since the only reason we know that Socrates had this view is because his student, Plato, disagreed with him and wrote it all down. <laughs> and so that kind of shows the power of using what was at the time the cutting-edge technology to advance um, human cognition and very much collective intelligence, since that's part of our collective history now. Um, and the people who tried to move against technology, sort of Luddite of the time, didn't get their views recorded at all. Um, so, even though that's a very historical example, <laughs> my, surprisingly, um, I guess as a philosopher, we move inch by inch. So, my, <laughs> uh, my work is sort of not that much far away from that. Um, but in the last 20 years, there's been these theories of, um, within philosophy of cognitive science, uh, what are called theories of cognitive extension. And they basically argue that some of the tools that we use can become uh, metaphysically on a par with our brain. So, they become a, a literal part of your mind. Um, so just to give you another example, the, um, the uh, famous physicist uh, Richard Feynman, uh, when he was working with his biographer, and the biographer tried to ask him, you know, what were you thinking when you solved this problem? And he had already given all his notes over, and he said, look, the thinking is in the paper. That's where the thinking was, so you have a total record of it. Um, and the idea is exactly what these philosophers now have in mind. So. Some of the, the tools you use and the symbols that you offload, that's really your thinking happening there. It's not like you're thinking in here and then repeating it into the world. You're moving those symbols around and you're pushing them around and that's, that is the act of thinking. Um, so a lot of the philosophical discourse on this view uh, has been primarily about really simple technologies. So like a pen and paper, um, sometimes there's a discussion of your iPhone extending your memory. So um, if you're like me, you're old enough to remember having to uh, sort of internally memorize your phone number and your friend's phone numbers, but now you don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, so that's sort of a sort of simple example of a technology replacing, you know, what used to be an internal task. Um, so yeah, so a lot of these discussions in philosophy are on these sort of simple uses of technology. Um, but what I've been trying to do is think about how AI and more sophisticated techniques can um, can improve sort of core cognitive capacities that we have. Um, so that, that includes things like memory, but also things like uh, metacognition, which is your kind of awareness of your own capacities and, and what you know and what you don't know. Um, and things like theory of mind, which is really important to this discussion on collective intelligence. So for those who don't know, um, theory of mind is typically cashed out in terms of things like emotional intelligence and your capacity to mind model. So your ability to figure out what is that other person really thinking and to have some sort of prediction about their current beliefs. And that's, those are the sort of things that actually I think AI could really improve and that can be really helpful not only to enhance a healthy person but also to help people with deficits in those areas. Um, so, so we know that AI can predict um, based on very, uh, basic information like your Facebook likes. It can infer your preferences, your personality types. 
Um, it can make predictions about what kind of choices you're going to make, your online behavior. Um, but it could also do that for your own social network, so everybody else that you're connected to. And then it could start to help you figure out what is that person likely to think? What are their beliefs, desires, intentions? So there's a lot of possibility in that space, and that's kind of what I've been thinking about recently. <laughs> and uh, in, your, in your opinion or in your thinking, when does it cross the line, I suppose, if we think about nudge techniques, for example, in the mm -hmm. context of social media, but also obviously there's application in many other sectors, including, for example, in the, pu the public sector. Um, do Is there a point at which... Uh, um, artificial intelligence can um, uh, move into the domain of influencing or restricting human capabilities and should we be worried about those unintended consequences or in order to find out all the possibilities of the technology do we have to let it um, kind of go where it wants to go? Yeah, great question. So there definitely is a concern about manipulation here. So unlike the pen and paper, which is just an output device, you pour information into the world, now we have these devices that we're intimately coupled with that have a kind of two-way interaction. So they can also change their interface, change the information, and, and essentially manipulate us, mm -hmm. potentially. Um, and so trying to figure out where is that line, which has been a long-standing philosophical concern about where's the line between sort of manipulation and persuasion mm -hmm. um, is a difficult question, I think, in these cases. Mm -hmm. So the standard answer that a philosopher will give is that persuasion requires appealing to one's rationality. So if I give you reasons to act in a certain way or if I give you reasons to, to buy a certain product and you think, hey, those are good reasons, I'm convinced by that, and then I've persuaded you. Mm. Um, but if I'm trying to get you to act in a certain way without giving you any reason, without appealing to your rationality, so let's say by putting the product I want you to buy at eye level mm. um, potentially or, or changing your choice architecture, your choice environment, um, that, that tips more into things like um, manipulation. Mm. And then and another big uh, concern is the one that Socrates started with, which is um, essentially cognitive atrophy. So the worry that our own internal um, cognitive capacities are going to diminish as they slowly get outsourced um, to our technologies. Mm. Alex, have you been doing thinking about the trade-offs Im implied in using AI in the context of um, collective intelligence? And, and do things like, um, for example, using AI uh, in the context of citizen participation and the potential um, kind of flip side to, for example, crowdsource citizen platforms in terms of surveillance, for example, or data collection, is that, um, do, you, do you see that as part of the, the consider, you know, issues for consideration when we think about how to use AI in this context? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think there's a number of kind of trade-offs that are highlighted within what you just said. So the whole point of citizen participation a lot of the time in the initiatives is that it has many beneficial effects and it's quite hard to pin down just one motivation or incentive that attracts people to take part in those initiatives. Um, and that might be completely different from the um, uh, local government or the national government that's actually uh, orchestrating that kind of exercise. And what um, we found in, for example, taking uh, the research that's coming out of citizen science, where you're having a lot of implementation of uh, machine learning uh, in classification, which was previously carried out by a really strongly motivated volunteer community, um, is that there seems to be a little bit of a trade-off of what you're optimizing for. So if you want to optimize for like the maximum efficiency to get to answer your scientific question, which is the real motivator behind citizen science, then 
um, you might be choosing to automate a greater proportion of the tasks on the platform. But there's a responsibility that you hold as a project coordinator to all of the people who have maybe for years supported your platform, helped to get it where it is, and also generated a lot of the labeled data sets which are then used to train the machine classifiers. And so when thinking about it in terms of the citizen science platform Zooniverse, where we see a lot of this experimentation taking place, it's really interesting to see them battle with some of those trade-offs and how they actually also frame it in the context of um, so-called accidental serendipity or serendipitous discovery, where sometimes having um, the parts of the task automated, um, as I think it was Julian was saying, that are the, the kind of really boring, menial tasks, are the things that humans rely on to have that time to like, be a bit distracted so then the creative idea comes. And if you take all of that away, if you don't have any blank images without the things that people are looking for on citizen science platforms, then they become worse at actually identifying the objects that they're looking for. And that sometimes actually having that little bit of relief that comes from a blank image, which might otherwise be you know, taken out because of this preference for speed or efficiency in making um, you know, a, a, a better kind of, uh, or moving towards the goal quicker, means that you don't get that, uh, that serendipitous discovery, which is actually like a really surprising but wonderful benefit of citizen mm -hmm. science platforms. And the question, uh, the question of whether AI optimize, how you optimize an AI for what, and, and whether efficiency is the kind of driving factor, I think is something that cuts across domains. In the context of art, Marco, it seems to me that we, I think many of us will be familiar with the, the notion that, um, for example, uh, content streaming platforms like Netflix have um, algorithms which optimize for you know greater um, uh, interest amongst its its usership, and therefore can design the plot of content that's being that's being developed by those platforms. Um, and um, I think one of the concerns that I would have about that. Um, being uh, becoming mainstream within the creative space is that you um, you end up with a more homogenous output, yeah. you know, really just optimized for the you know majority view on what they want to watch on Netflix. Um, do you have concerns about in in that in the context of the creative work that you're doing that you'll you know that that will sacrifice something in terms of diversity or inclusivity by using AI in the in the art space? No, I mean, yeah, I have for sure uh, some. Um, we have concern. Uh, constantly because the problem is uh, also when we do this kind of uh, project the problem is that what we generate is based on the data mm -hmm. so there is nothing new there is nothing creative so there is no chance that uh, any system like that can generate something that is original a artist even if, if they want to work with the AI system they want to see also something original something inspiring mm -hmm. so anything that is uh, trivially kind of a, a mix of what exists already. At the end, it's interesting, but it has big limitations. So it's something that definitely we don't want to, we don't want to see every time. I mean, sometimes it's surprising because if we talk about, uh, let's say, combinations of things, we're talking about uh, billion and trillion of uh, possible uh, outcomes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you see that uh, to make it really right and diverse, you need to really have uh, a lot of uh, uh, right example and their approaches to be um, 
made correctly. So there is a lot of work on doing that. So it's not trivial at all. I think you mentioned previously the model dad work that you did. Yeah, the perfect mom. That. Yeah, perfect, perfect mom. Yeah. yeah, exactly. In that case, I show you this. A uh, couple of years ago, actually, is there with this? Yeah, couple of years ago, a brand asked a request to basically create a face of the perfect mom in UK. So you okay? You already <coughs> because of course this is exactly what I said. So we they are looking for trouble. <laughs> so, and uh, this is what happens. So, this is the representation they will receive. But why we receive that one? Because the brand asks uh, on purpose to collect data from just the social media and uh, magazines. So, they want that we bias basically the system. So, the system receives. Oh, yeah, is that? Oh, uh, I think. Uh, oh, yes. The system received just image of a perfect makeup blonde moms, not real, not the real representation of what moms are in UK. I'm gonna be dead next week, so I follow my I follow my wife's pregnancy. I know up and down of moms, and I will see next what's happened. Definitely, is not always like what you see there. I, I think you agree with me. And uh, so the system, of course, learn and collect all this data and memorize that. But, and uh, you can imagine what uh, can happens. So the result, the sample, was something like that. So you see a homogeneous, beautiful, there are artifacts, of course, because it's based on the technique. But you see how they look pretty similar, pretty like all blonde makeup. <coughs> and of course, the outcome of that was that everyone uh, at the end was really pissed off. <laughs> because, and it was the purpose of the campaign. So the brand want to show how uh, moms are represented in the UK, how they live under pressure of this kind of social media magazine representation. So for a few days, uh, we basically published on a big billboard on Waterloo Station. And uh, they need to basically pull out uh, after two days because of the protest of people on, on media. So, and, they sh and they show what they want to do that. They want to keep as a secret, but then, of course, they need to, because of, uh, kind of try to save the face. But uh, at the end, uh, of course, the campaign went really well. But you see, the problem was uh, that the system doesn't know how to make something. So if you give uh, the wrong representation, of course. It just tells the truth based on the data. There is nothing more. And this is the big problem that we face mm -hmm. when we have uh, data collection, for sure. Thank you. I think that's a really interesting example of the technical limitations of AI in this space, but those technical limitations somehow then become social limitations when we apply them writ large. Um, Julian, can you talk to us a bit about um, potentially the the importance of diversity and also contextuality and how it relates with AI. And perhaps drawing on your experience with the Troll Patrol work, um, how that, that became a challenge and how AI systems deal with that. So I know this is what we said I'd be speaking about in this part, but to be honest, the, the conversation so far has made me think of a few other things oh, which I think yeah. might be slightly more relevant yeah. here. Um, when you mentioned the, the Netflix, problems or the which which is the same actually when you recommend videos on YouTube um, Alex you, you mentioned earlier the difference between uh, supervised versus unsupervised learning 
uh, with the current reinforcement learn in learning algorithms, or more generally with any algorithm which not only generates models, but actually makes decisions, and decisions which later guide the new data that you can collect. So you've shown only a specific set of movies to people whose data you will collect is about which of these specific movies people prefer. Uh, there's a new notion that I think would be quite useful for people to be aware of, which is exploration versus exploitation. I mean, it's, it's only new in the fact that it's rarely spoken about outside of reinforcement learning, but it's really when you have an algorithm that is trying to optimize a certain metric, it has a choice between exploiting what it already has seen works pretty well, so doing the same thing over and over again, versus exploring, which is, hey, I'm going to try this Danny thing here and see what the result is. Is it getting any better? Uh, and honestly, that's nothing very new with AI. It's been around since the design of experiments where, hey, do I try this new breed of crops or do I just stick to the crop I know works well? We have more and more algorithms right now where there's a lot of exploitation going on and you have the algorithm is optimizing for an incentive which we might not have quite thought through what the results could be. For example, staying in, in the media case, focus on maximizing the user engagement with the platform. So how much videos they look at. Well, that is great because it's a measure of how interested they are about the content you provide. Well, it turns out that we end up uh, the algorithm ends up selecting videos that just really triggers you emotionally and make you really stick to it. So you get more and more recommendation of really, well, quite extremist content by the time you're done watching. Uh, so here there's a, there's a strong exploitation and optimization for a specific incentive. Um, when the exploration here could have been, let's say, slightly done better. And actually that's where it goes in terms of, of diversity, the diversity of data you sample from Marco, you, you showed the example here of the UK mom, which was learned only from, uh, fr from well, magazine pictures. Uh, and that, that's where the exploration wa wa was badly done. Uh, Marco, you also mentioned about the generated pictures you provided. Who is the creator of the art? Um, if we think in terms of ethics, this question of, okay, the decision has been made by an algorithm, who is the, the the creator of this decision, that can get actually pretty wrong pretty quickly. How many of you have heard last year of the Uber uh, self-driving car that killed a woman in uh, Arizona? Yeah. yeah, you heard the deadly crash. How many of you now know what's the status of Uber and of the driver of the car? Yeah, that's much less known. Uh, Uber, a year later, was cleared of all charges, and the safety driver uh, is, is currently facing charges for manslaughter. Um, because she was not paying attention to the road, she was watching a, a movie and she was high. Um, which admittedly is not a good way to drive, um, <laughs> but at the same time, when you are stuck behind a wheel for eight hours and being told don't touch the wheel unless you really have to, well, this kind of constant vigilance at doing nothing is very much why we build machines, not humans. Uh, and so it goes into the question of, okay, who is responsible? Uh, same thing goes in healthcare. I mean, an algorithm makes a wrong call on a patient uh, and triages it badly, and okay, whose responsibility is it? Is it the hospital? Is it the company that made the algorithm? Is it the clinician? And if you look in tech, there's a very long tradition of end-user license agreement. You know the stuff on which, which you click, I accept, which is the biggest and most frequent lie in the world these days? Uh, well, these usually absolve the company of any responsibility. 
which is fine when you're doing a word processor and you just lose maybe half of your novel, uh, but is slightly more impactful when it is people's lives on the line. Uh, so here we go into, into the question of the responsibility. And that's where, now I'm taking you know, the, the engineer view, and, and that's why I'm so glad today to be talking to uh, a crowd like this, who is very involved in actually the design of how society works, which is we are putting this tech into the hands of companies uh, who are maximizing for certain incentives. And again, generally, it's Kentaro Toyama on ICT40 would used to say that technology, regardless of what type of technology it is, is not a solution. It's just a magnifier of human intent. Uh, so how can we make sure that as a society we develop intents which actually goes towards the best use of this tech? I mean, the, I've taken the cowardly way out. You know, rather than trying to block uh, the, the bad users of, uh, of AI, I'm into putting it at least in the, in the hands of those who have good intent. Uh, it is still fraught with questions. We developed with uh, Amnesty uh, using crowdsourcing and, and citizen science, a detector of uh, two cools, villages in Darfur from satellite imagery. Uh, now, that, that can be very, very helpful for, for Amnesty uh, and for actually quite a few other organizations. But hey, in the wrong hands, it's also, uh, as you mentioned, Alex, it's, it's also surveillance. Uh, so how do we make sure that what we design for Amnesty cannot be used by the Sudanese military? We want transparent research. Uh, but at the same time, when we publish the algorithm, it makes it much easier to use. We developed, in June, we topped a European Space Agency competition on taking low-resolution, free satellite imagery from uh, the, the ESA public satellites and merging several of them to get a high-resolution image. So rather than spending $4 million for a snapshot of Darfur, you get it for free from multiple low-resolution images. What do we do with that? Do we publish it or not? In this one case, and, and uh, Karina, you mentioned for many of these, you need to see case by case. Uh, in this one, we decided, okay, because we are part of a competition on which we rank first or second, depending on the metric, um, the other participants will also put their algorithms out there. Uh, so the marginal harm we do by putting our algorithm out there is rather small, while the marginal harm by not putting it out there, which is taking ourselves out of the conversation on these algorithms, uh, is actually more problematic. So in this case, we put just the algorithm for this specific competition on this specific type of data out there. But these are questions that we will keep going into all the time and that as a technologist, I'm not, I'm not legitimate to make this decision alone. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Julian. I'm co conscious of the fact that we've kind of um, completely eradicated the audience's ability to ask <laughs> questions and now I stand between you and lunch. So I'm inclined to just ask one more question to Karina as our resident philosopher um, in terms of um, what, ex what, you know, where do you think the potential is here? What excites you about where this may go in terms of human uh, AI interactions and expanding human capabilities? Um, and, you know, where do you think the real potential wins are here from, a, from your perspective? Yeah, great. Um, so I, I guess the, the thing that excites me the most, um, so this is very much with the philosopher's hat on, is the idea of opening up sort of new conceptual space and new conceptual avenues. And a good sort of tangible example of this is the um, uh, AlphaGo system that, that DMIME produced. Um, so I guess everyone's probably familiar with AlphaGo beating um, Go champion Lisa Gall 
nods. Okay, good. Um, so, so part of what was so exciting about some of those wins um, was that the system made moves that a human player would have never made. Um, and that uh, a lot of Go experts were kind of shocked by and, and they described as surprising and some even described as creative, although I would argue that it's a different definition of creativity than um, is typically um, used, at least amongst um, comparative psychologists. Um, um, but but it, what it was surely was what um, the philosopher Maggie Bowden describes as um, transformational creativity. And so the idea there was that it opened up a possibility. So it's a possible move that now human players can use going forward that they would have never considered as being good. And in fact, the more games that are being played by these systems, human expert players are now going back and training off of those games to think about the game in a totally different way. And there's different reasons people um, have put forward for why we think that even the experts weren't thinking like the machine is thinking. Part of it is because um, we might be encumbered by our own sort of instincts um, and our own sort of evolutionary history, our own patterns and customs, and that gives a totally different way of looking at the problem. Um, and that can be true in, in sort of game playing, but it could also be true in things like um, drug discovery and scientific discoveries and, and things that can really change of society. So that that is really exciting, I think. I think that's great. And it's a nice tie to what you were saying, Alex, about that, you know, some of these technologies might close down the space for ideas, but actually they can also, as you said to, to quote you, think about the game in a whole different way. And that's the really exciting bit about how AI might extend human capabilities. Um, rather than open up for questions, I would suggest that you um, speak to the, the our um, panelists over lunch out in the, in the foyer, if that's okay with you, Peter. Yeah, 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 sure. But yeah, please let, put your hands together and thank everyone for your contribution. Um, yeah, not to thought, uh, now there's coffee and lunch outside. But before you go, just to make you aware of what's happening after lunch. So um, the next round of the Justice Syndicate Theatre is kicking off at 1.30. So if you want to start that, you only have half an hour for lunch, and then it's up to the second floor to take part in that. Um, at 2 o'clock, we kick, up the, kick off the next uh, data science workshop in room 6.3. We're doing another round of the manifesto uh, in room 6.1. And in here, we'll be talking about if uh, CIA can help us fix a world that is a mess. Uh, so uh, an easy question to sort uh, with, uh, with uh, after lunch. But anyway, uh, go enjoy your lunch, and I'll see you back here at uh, 2.